by this I mean that all of us have a view of God. Technically, theology comes from two Greek terms, theos, meaning God, and logos, which means word or discourse, and in this sense means something like the study of or a discourse about. We do this with a lot of Greek terms. Think of biology. The Greek term bios or bios means life, and ology means the study of, so it's biology is the study of life. Or anthropology. Anthropos is the Greek term for man. Anthropology is the study of man. Cosmology. Cosmos is the Greek term for the world. Cosmology then is the scientific term for the study of the world. So it's not unusual to make uh, two Greek terms together and come up with an English term. That's what theology is. Theology is the study of God. Some of us have a view of God that is based upon careful, thoughtful reflection and study. And others have a view of God that is superficial at best. But we're all theologians. Some of us are just better and more thoughtful theologians than others because we all have a view of God, even if your view of God is that there is no God. And throughout this study, we just hope to become theologians whose view is based upon careful and reflective study and based upon something that we can validate, particularly from the Word of God. A.W. Tozer once said, What you think about God is the most important thing about you. In our spiritual lives, we cannot transcend the God that we worship. We can rise no higher than what we believe to be the highest. Our concept of God will have a marked impact, a marked practical impact on our lives. So again, my purpose in this study, which will probably last approximately 25 lessons, my purpose in this study is to make us all better theologians. From the person who's just getting started in their Christian experience to those who have been pursuing this area of study for quite some time. I hope we all improve as theologians throughout this study. If you're new to Christianity, please understand that theological terms can sometimes be intimidating. But don't let that discourage you from learning more about God. It's worth the effort, I promise you. And every field of study has its technical terms. Whether it's something casual like a football game or something more serious like the field of medicine. Every field of study has its technical terms. So don't be put off by technical terms. We'll explain them as we go. And it'll be extremely meaningful to you. I promise you. Learning about God is the single most important thing that any of us will ever do. The more we know of God, the more we can love Him, and the more we can consistently live the way He wants us to live, and then ultimately, the happier we'll be. That's what we all want, isn't it? We all want contentment. We all want happiness. But in an adaptation to the old Johnny Lee song, too many of us are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Not looking for love in all the wrong places. Too many of us are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. This is the place to look for happiness. The study of God and His Word. Not just the study of God proper that we begin tonight, but the entirety of the study of theology. What does God want us to know about Himself, and how should we act as a result of what we know? If we want to be truly happy or truly contented in this life, we need to know God, and we need to submit ourselves to Him. That's the secret to real happiness. That's what we all really want. That's what I want. That's what you want, too. 
It would be my contention in this study that all mankind, assuming a normal or near normal intellect, knows that God exists. Intuitively, mankind knows that there is a God. Those that claim otherwise are willfully suppressing the knowledge of the truth. Deep down, the atheist is being dishonest with himself and is functioning against reason. That's the most unfortunate thing. Before we get too deep into our study of the fundamentals of the faith, it would be helpful to consider the way that we understand God's self-disclosure. There are three theories as to how God has disclosed himself to us. Now, you know that God is there and he's not silent. That happened to be the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's most well-known works. He's there and he's not silent. There are three theories, and we need to have some understanding of this up front before anything else that we say about God is going to make sense. Three theories. There's an equivocal theory about God's self-disclosure to man. There's a univocal theory about God's self-disclosure to man. And there's an analogical theory about God's self-disclosure to man. A moment ago, I gave you a warning about technical theological terms and was encouraging you not to be intimidated by that. These three terms have an extreme practical application. And if we can understand this, believe it or not, many of the problems that you encounter in theological studies will actually be solved before you get to them. If we have a foundation of how God disclosed himself to us in the first place. The term equivocal means in an entirely different way. In this view, the way God disclosed himself to us, there is no correspondence at all to the way that God is and the way that he's revealed himself to us. There's no correspondence. That's the equivocal view. Now, you might rightly argue, well, if there's no correspondence, has there been any revelation? And you'd be right to say that. But this comes up in a practical way sometimes, and it sounds like this. Now, listen, because most of you have heard this or something like it before, and now you'll be able to see that it's part of a faulty theory. Even smart people can make errors in this. It would go something like this. I know the Bible says that God is love, but God's not really love. And you scratch your head and say, well, what do you mean by that? And they would say something like, well, you can't compare God's love to human love. And you say, well, why did God use the term then? It certainly seemed as though when he was communicating his attributes to us, and if he used the term and all of humanity has a fairly decent idea as to what it means, why would he use that term if he didn't want to communicate something? The one who believes in an equivocal view of God's self-disclosure would say there is no connection. Now watch, there's no connection between the way God revealed himself in some of these terms he uses like love and the way God really is. These are the people that say God is totally other. Since he's infinite, we're finite, we cannot understand him at all. Well, if that's the case, then you could rightly argue that no communication has taken place at all, and there has been no divine self-disclosure. Are you following me? If the Bible says that God is love, but we turn around and say, I know that's what the Bible says, but God is so totally other than us, his love is so totally unlike ours that there's no correspondence whatsoever between the two, I am postulating to you tonight that there is no disclosure that's taken place at all. If there's no correspondence, there's no revelation. 
the term univocal means the same. It means entirely the same. In this view, there's a one-to-one correspondence between the way God revealed himself to us and the way that he actually is. Now think about that for a moment. God is infinite. If there's a one-to-one correspondence between the way that God revealed himself to us and the way that he actually is, in other words, if if an infinite God is going to give someone else infinite information, who does that someone else have to be? If I'm going to if I'm going to understand God 100% the way that God is, who do you have to be? You have to thank you. You have to be God. And the reason you have to be God is because a finite mind cannot comprehend an infinite concept completely. While there is no communication with an equivocal view that has no correspondence, we would say in order to have a univocal view of God, we'd have to be God ourselves. Now, it's arguable. Some people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a univocal understanding of God. I doubt that. I really do. Because while we'll be in resurrection bodies, we're still finite. You realize the resurrection body is not infinite. We're still finite. So we would have to reject this univocal view. So what are we left with? We're left with an analogical view. Analogical view means that this is similar to, or God is like this. And this is the view that all hold, at least in theory, while some maybe don't practice it, but all theologians hold this in theory. It means something like this. God in his infinite wisdom came up with a way to communicate his infinite perfections to finite creatures. You've got infinity here. You've got a finite creature here. And infinity needs to communicate to a finite mind the way that he is. And God came up with a way to do it. And he did it by analogy. In other words, God is like this. Back to my example of God's love. When the Bible tells us that God is love, God knows infinitely that we have an understanding of what love would be like. Just innately as human beings, we have this understanding of what would be loving and what's not. I don't think you have to take a course in philosophy to be able to define love in order to be able to recognize love. If a person's out here and is beating someone to death in the parking lot and stealing their wallet, none of us would say, well, that's love. But if someone was out in the parking lot and took that person up, healed their wounds, and gave them money and fed them and put them up for the night, we would say, well, that's an example of love. You don't have to be a genius to see the difference between hatred and love. Now, granted, there is not a one-to-one correspondence between the way God's love functions, or is to be understood, and the way that we understand love, because our love is flawed. Our love is inconsistent. God's love is perfect. It's consistent. It functions the same way every time. Our love doesn't, but it's still love. There is some correspondence between the way God really is and the way he's revealed himself to us. Otherwise, there'd be no communication. Now, this seems pretty simple and straightforward, and many of you have heard it before. But if there's no correspondence, the equivocal view, if there's no correspondence, then there's no communication. If we took a univocal view, we'd have to be God to understand God in a perfect one-to-one correspondence. So the way God reveals himself to us, an infinite creator to his finite creation is by analogy. God is like this. Now, this is not a controversial subject in terms of its theory, but I will say it can be somewhat controversial in terms of its practice. Because while everyone, in theory, 
would agree with an analogical view of God's self-disclosure that sometimes we slip off the cliff a bit and start acting like God revealed himself to us in an equivocal way. That's when we get frustrated. So an understanding of this relatively simple principle is crucial to our understanding of God. And if we just understand this, it will help us to correct many mistakes. Now, with that preface behind us, how should we define God? It's not as easy as you might think. Webster's Dictionary gives it a good try. God is perfect in power, wisdom, and goodness, who is worshipped as creator and ruler of the universe. That's not bad for Webster's. That's not a theological dictionary type of uh, rendering, but it's not bad for a start. But if we think about it for a moment, we're going to realize it's kind of incomplete. Not the best definition of God we could come up with. On the other end of the spectrum, listen to this definition of God from the theologian Gordon Lewis. God is an invisible, personal, and living spirit, distinguished from all other spirits by several kinds of attributes. Metaphysically, God is self-existent, eternal, and unchanging. Intellectually, God is omniscient, faithful, and wise. Ethically, God is just, merciful, and loving. Emotionally, God detests evil, is long-suffering, and is compassionate. Existentially, God is free, authentic, and omnipotent. Relationally, God is transcendent in being, imminent universally in providential activity, and imminent with his people in redemptive activity. Now, that's a great definition. And its strength is its completeness, but it is a bit cumbersome, and it is a bit long. I happen to like Charles Lyrie's definition of God, and that is that God is the sum total of his infinite perfections. Really, that says a lot in a fairly short space. God is the sum total of his infinite perfections. Most of us are familiar with the basics of God's infinite perfections, like these, like sovereignty. Sovereignty basically means that God's the boss, that he has a right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation because he's the creator. Most of us are familiar with that term. God is also eternal, which means he had no beginning. Now, I can in my finite mind grasp the idea of a being that has no end. But a being that has no beginning, I can't do it. And since you have a finite mind, you can't do it either. Now, neurologically, I'm told that the brain itself has no pain fibers. Now, the pain fibers all around it, but the brain itself has no pain fibers. But it hurts my brain to try to think of a being that had no beginning, that always existed. But that's what is meant by God in his eternal life. God is holy. We've heard that before. And when God is holy, we say he's perfectly holy. He is totally without sin. Never even thought about sinning. Never sinned verbally, never sinned mentally, never sinned overtly. Never. He's perfectly holy. Sometimes people like to combine two of God's attributes, his justice and his righteousness, and put them together as one attribute, his holiness. So God is holy. He's sovereign. He's eternal. He's holy. He's also love. He doesn't simply function in love. He doesn't simply act in a loving way. The Bible says God is love. 1 John 4, 8. That's what the text says. God is love. It's one of his infinite perfections. God is omniscient. That means that God knows everything that's knowable. But there's more. He 
he's always known it. With God, all knowledge is simultaneous. Now, this might seem like it has very little application. Oh, believe me, it does. It's one of the most comforting aspects of God's infinite perfection. He knows everything, and he's always known it, which means that God has never learned anything. If you were to say to me tonight when we exit this building, Bruce, you've never learned anything in your life, have you? I would probably rightly take offense at that. Now, I, well, actually, I probably wouldn't because I've got such an even-keeled personality that those things don't bother me. I don't mind criticism. Just bring it on. But you can actually honestly say God has never learned anything because he never had to. Because he always knew everything that's knowable. Not only did he know everything that's knowable, what actually has happened in the past and what will happen tonight and what's going to happen in the future, he also knows the possibility, not just the actual. And this is one of those mind-blowing things, too. He knows everything that could have happened had you made a different decision. Anywhere along the way, and not just you, but everybody who's ever lived, if they would have made just one different decision, how that would have impacted humanity all throughout history. If you would have chosen to go to a different college, if you would have chosen maybe not to make that phone call, or, or if you would have said, I'm not going to take that job, I'm going to do this over here, what would have been the ramifications, not just for your life, but for everybody else's life as well? That's omniscience. He's also omnipotent, which means that God is able to do everything that it's intrinsically possible to do. He's all-powerful. Now, some people have looked at omnipotence in the past, and they wanted to do like a gotcha moment. It says, do you think God is omnipotent? Yes, I do. That's what the Bible says. He, he can do anything? Yes, that's what the Bible says. Well, can God create a stone that's so heavy that he can't move? So omnipotence says that God can do whatever it is intrinsically possible to do. He doesn't get bogged down with absurdity. And that's exactly what that objection is. It's a skeptical absurdity. And God doesn't play those games. He, does, he can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. He's also omnipresent. Now, omnipresence means that God is everywhere present. Now, let's be frank. Omnipresence can be extremely comforting. And it can be the scariest of all of God's attributes. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, then omnipresence is extremely comforting. That's Psalm 139. There's nowhere you can go. There's nowhere you can go where God's not there. So you can rest assured that he's got you taken care of. He doesn't lose track of you, whether you're at the North Pole or the South Pole or somewhere in between. Anywhere in between, God's there. And that's extremely comforting, except for the times where we are outside of God's plan, and maybe we're doing something we ought not to be doing, and he's there, too. So it can either be extremely comforting or it can be extremely scary. But God is omnipresent. God is truthful. Do you remember when Jesus said at the end of that great statement in the beginning of John chapter 14? Remember, he begins, Peter's all upset. Jesus is about to be crucified. And Jesus tells Peter, let not your hearts be troubled. He's speaking to the entirety of the disciples. He's looking at Peter when he says, But let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. For where I am going, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas, who got the nickname Doubting for this and a couple other things, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, some of us could say we speak the truth. Only Jesus could say, I am the truth. It's kind of like love. He doesn't just exercise love. He is love. He doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. I am the way, the truth. So he's not just saying there, I'm telling you the truth. He does that other places. But in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Then immutability. God can't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Some people have raised an objection to God's immutability. That's the theological word for that God can't change. And they said, well, wait a minute. If God can't change, then how can you say that he can make choices? Because that seems to be a change, doesn't it? So that objection falls short as well. What we're saying here is that God is immutable with regard to his being. In his being, he is immutable. He will never not be sovereignty. He'll always have eternal life. He'll always be holy. He'll always be love, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. He will always be totally truthful. That never changes. In his actions, he may change. The act of making an action is indicating a change in his state that was before. God is immutable in his essential being. So when Charles Ryrie says God is the sum total of his infinite perfections, he's not any one of the things that I just mentioned to you. He's all of those put together. God is the sum total of his infinite perfections. There are two attributes that most people are not as familiar with as those that I just mentioned that I want to begin our study with tonight. Those two attributes are God's pure actuality and his simplicity. Again, please don't be intimidated by these terms. We'll explain them, and you'll get it right away. I promise. First, pure actuality. Pure actuality is that which is, or that which exists, with no possibility not to exist, or to be anything other than it is. It's existence Pure and simple. Pure actuality has no potential for non-existence. And it has no potential for change. Now, that's the key idea. Pure actuality. To say that God is pure actuality means that he has no potential to change. Pure actuality actually has no potential of any kind. To say nothing of the potential to cease to exist. Someone said a couple hundred years ago that God is dead. We've killed him. Which he was wrong. God can't die. He's pure actuality. This means that whatever God is, he is to the degree of infinite perfection. Again, back to Ryrie's definition. 
God has no potential. That means that God can't be any more powerful than he already is. He can't be any smarter than he already is. He can't be any more loving than he already is. He can't be any more eternal than he already is. He can't be any more holy than he already is. Pure actuality means that everything that exists in God has already been actualized to infinity. There's no potential for God to improve. Needless to say, we are not pure actuality. Again, back to my illustration a moment ago, if you came to me afterwards and said, Bruce, you have no potential, that would be an insult. Because all human beings have potential to be better or smarter or more healthy or whatever it may be than we are right now. We all take pleasure in that. But God has no potential. But that's not a knock on God. The reason it's not a knock on God is because he can't get any smarter. Omniscience can't get any smarter. Omnipotence can't get any stronger. That's pure actuality. He can't be any more holy than he already is. That's pure actuality. So God has no potential for growth. Again, with us, that would be an insult. With God, that's the truth. He's got no potential for growth. He doesn't need to grow. What he is, he's always been. And he's always been it to the degree of perfection. When Moses asks God his name in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. God is pure I am-ness. He's the self-existent one who depends on no one else for his being. Thomas Aquinas, a very fine theologian, lived in the 1200s, said this. It was shown that there is some first being whom we call God, and that this first being must be pure act without any admixture of any potentiality. Again, what Aquinas is saying and what I'm saying tonight, it all boils down to this. God has no potential. He doesn't need any potential because everything he is, he is to the degree of infinity. I hope you'll agree. That's, it's not, it shouldn't be a radically new concept to us. Maybe pure actuality is a new word. But now you know. Pure actuality means God has no potential. There have been some objections to this historically. And one of the most common objections goes like this. If God has no ex- potential, then explain creation. Similar to the one I mentioned to you a minute ago. If he has no potential, then explain creation. Because there was a time when his creation didn't exist. So then there must have been a potential for him to create, right? So God has potential. Well, not so fast. God has no passive potential. He has no possibility to be what he's not. But he does have active potential, the power to do what he has done. That doesn't diminish his pure actuality at all. Since the potential to create existed in God's active power to create, just as the potential to move a book pre-exists our muscles before we move it. There's potential in my arm right now to move this book. Me moving it is just the outworking of that potential. So God does have active potential, but he has no passive potential. Everything he is, he is to the degree of infinity. The second term that I wanted to consider tonight is God's simplicity. This is so incredibly important. The reason I say that is because on a practical level, 
there have been theological fights that have taken place for 500 years because really smart theologians have forgotten this aspect of God's infinite perfection, his simplicity. The term simplicity, when ascribed to God, means that he is not capable of being divided. There are no themes in God. He's absolute unity. Obviously, you can see an application immediately, I'm sure, with the Trinity. We'll study that in a future lesson as well. We'll come back to that. God is a perfect unity. He cannot be divided. From a practical standpoint, God's simplicity means that his love cannot be viewed separately from his holiness. And his holiness can't be viewed separately from his sovereignty. His sovereignty can't be viewed separately from his omniscience. And his omniscience can't be viewed separately from his omnipotence. It's not as though all those characteristics I gave you a moment ago are like a pie. And each one of them is a slice of the pie. And we can take out one of those characteristics and study it and emphasize it and overemphasize it to the exclusion of all the others. God's not that way. We need to do that in order to come to some grasp of God. But the reason I'm beginning with the idea of God's simplicity is that even though next week we're going to spend a little bit more time on those, some of those attributes I mentioned a moment ago, remember, with God, it's a package deal. It's the whole pie. If you take any piece out of that pie, he's not God anymore. And all of his attributes, all of his infinite perfections work in conjunction with all of his other infinite perfections. Let me show how this can work out in real life. God's love will never motivate God to do anything that will violate his justice or his holiness. That's a very practical application right from the beginning. Because some people would like to say, if God was really loving, then no one would go to hell. You can make a case for that. If you took God's love away from the rest of his infinite perfections and overemphasized that to the exclusion of the rest. But as we saw before, God is not simply love. God is also righteous and just. He's holy. And if God's love would motivate him to do something that violated his holiness, his holiness puts up a roadblock and says, oh no, wait a minute, it can't be that one. God is not going to act inconsistently in one part of his being with another part of his being. Some people like to say, since God is love, then everybody's going to go to heaven. Other people take another aspect of God's infinite perfections and they pull it out of that pie and they overemphasize it. I'm not saying it shouldn't be emphasized. I'm talking about overemphasizing. Some people take God's sovereignty out and they act in a practical way like it's his only attribute. Yes, God does have the sovereign right over his creation to do whatever he wants to do. Yes, a thousand times yes. I totally admit that. And you should too. We should never deny that statement. That God, because he is sovereign, because he's the boss, has the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. But we need to keep in mind that God in his sovereignty and the decisions that he makes about what he's going to do with his creation is never going to make a decision that conflicts his love. And he's never going to make a decision that conflicts his perfect holiness. 
or for that matter, his omniscience where he knows all the facts. If we'll keep that in mind, it may not make a lot of sense to you tonight, but later on, if we keep that in mind, God's simplicity, meaning he can't be divided, meaning we can't just take out one of his infinite perfections and him still be God. If we keep that in mind, that settles a lot of theological issues, or at least goes a long way towards settling. Think about the, the Calvinism-Arminianism issue for just a moment. Many of the Arminian theologians in the past overstressed the love of God without giving due recognition to the sovereignty of God. Unfortunately, many Calvinistic theologians overstressed the sovereignty of God without giving due recognition to God's omniscience and his love. If we will just realize that God in his simplicity can't be divided, everything has to work together. And God always acts consistently with who he is. Do we? Well, heaven forbid, no, we don't. I mean, heaven forbid, there's whole chapters in the scriptures urging us to act consistently with who we are. No, many times we don't. But God always does. Now that's God's simplicity. Of course, it also has implications for the Trinity. And one of the most well-known verse to any of your Jewish friends is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. He's a perfect unity. Now, that Hebrew term is echad, E-C-H-A-D. Echad doesn't just mean one in number. It means one in unity. Every time the Jews say that word in their synagogues every week when they meet, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. They're affirming God's simplicity, whether they know it or not. And whenever you said that, you're also affirming God's simplicity. So we have two primary terms tonight that I want to leave you with and make sure that we have them. We'll come back to some of the other ones. The first is pure actuality. Pure actuality means God has no potential. Whatever he is, he is to the degree of infinity. And the second is simplicity meaning that God cannot be divided. He always acts perfectly consistently with who he is, the sum total of his infinite perfections. He's always going to act consistently, and never, never will one of his attributes violate another one of his attributes. Pure actuality and simplicity. Learning about God is the single most important thing that we will ever do in this life. There is nothing more important, and I really hope that all of us will come to that conclusion before this life winds down. Before we get on our deathbeds and we say, man, I wish I would have spent a little less time doing that and a lot more time doing this. Because it's not just the fact of knowing about God and learning about God. It's what we do with that. Once we know more of God, once we learn more of Him, we will love Him more. We'll love Him more deeply and more intensely. And if we love him more deeply and more intensely, then we will obey his commands. We'll live our lives in a way that pleases him and rewards him. That's why I say it. There's nothing more important than this life.